0: Get your Bibles open, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. And I want to encourage you to not only just open your Bibles, but open your hearts. And let's see what God is going to say to us. And here's one way that I'm going to get you to get your mind going. I'm going to ask you a question. And here's the question. Who is it that you strongly desire to To receive salvation from Jesus Christ. Who is it that you so strongly want to see get saved? Whose face just came to your mind? What name just came to your mind? Maybe names, but who really is at the top of that? Who is it that you so strongly want to see get saved? And if that person, question number two, if that person would listen to you, if that person would say, go ahead and explain what it is that I need to understand, if they would listen to you, how would you share the good news of Jesus Christ? What would you actually say? What would be the content of your message? Do you know what that would be? Have you thought through what that would be? Do you know biblically what that should be? And are you ready if that were to happen today? Who do you so strongly want to see get saved? What would you actually say if they said, go ahead, fire it at me? And third, are you ready if that opportunity comes today? What we're going to see in this passage is the man, the miracle, and the message. How's that? I alliterated it for you. It couldn't be more simple. And in fact, this is a very simple message. The man, the miracle, and the message. And we're going to look at the man first. Now get in your Bibles if you would. Here we go. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Intermission, pause, context little insight, this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They started their days at 6 in the morning. That's when their clock turned over to the new day. So it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from... A year ago? An accident when he was 12? No. A man lame from birth. This is going to be interesting. Was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate or... The Nicanar, or Nicanar gate, it's actually the name of it, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. We've got a beggar. He's lame. He cannot walk. He's carried. He's put at a gate. And we've got two apostles. They are on their way. Listen, this is where they're going. They're going to a prayer service. There's three of them a day in the temple. Early in the morning, at noon, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when the Jewish people began their evening. That's when they began their evening, was at 3. And they drew near to the temple, and there was a lame beggar at the beautiful gate. Now, this gate leads into... The house of the Lord. The inner temple, or at least it leads into the inner courts of the temple. And the temple grounds the footprint of what they call it, right? The whole thing. The ground, the footprint, it's massive. You want to know how massive it is? It's over 35 acres. Big. This is how big the temple grounds were. Well, that might not mean much, so I'll give you a little perspective. The footprint of Lincoln Financial Field, where the Philadelphia Eagles play, is 15 acres. If you've ever been there, you've got to go twice that and even a little bit more. And that 15 acres for the financial field, that includes the four-cell jail that they use. Okay, I just had to throw that in. Come on, that's funny. That's the Eagles. They actually had a jail. They don't use it anymore. They abandoned it after a year or two, but they actually have a jail for their unruly, unholy, terrible fans. <laughs> Unlike the cowboys, who are all believers. <laughs> Here we've got an encounter that takes place at one of their many, the many gates of the temple, and it serves, by the way, the gates serve as the unemployment office and the disability office For those in need. That's how they function back in the first century. The sick as well as those looking for work would be at the gates. And foremen would go find their day laborers at the gates. They would pick them from the men or the women that were standing there. And compassionate people would support those who were unable to work because of a disability. So they would stay there, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and they would be given alms. They would be given money. So there is no better place. Now think about this. There is no better place for a beggar to set up than where people go to worship God with glad hearts. That's true, by the way, in inner cities where there are churches so this man had never walked he is lame from birth verse 2 he's more than 40 years old chapter 4 verse 22 got to get that little detail he's more than 40 he's not just broke financially he's broken as a person and a miracle is on its way now that's the man point number two now let's look at the miracle. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter does what you know, you know, you never do with a beggar. He looks at him. He directed his gaze at him, as did John. So the two of them did. But yet they spoke and they said to the lame man, look at us. And he fixed his attention on Peter and John expecting what? A miracle? No. Look at the text. He was expecting to receive something from them. Money. Peter and John look right at him. Now, by the way, if you've ever read the book Under the Overpass, came out years ago, one of the better books that I've read, Two guys that lived homelessly for on purpose, Christians, for I forget how many months. Almost a year, I think. And one of the things that they learned, this was a learning project for them. They had guitars, they lived on the streets, they truly lived homelessly. One of the things that they learned is that nobody wants to look at you when you're begging. And it invalidates a beggar. It actually incapacitates them as a human being. They are irrelevant and invisible, without dignity, and less than a human being. And what do Peter and John do? They look right at him. And Peter says, verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, what you might not know, perhaps you do, is that nobody with a deformity is ever allowed into the temple. This is a man lame from birth, acts 4, 44. For over 40 years old, he has never in his life been allowed to go into the temple. And what does he do? He can walk. He is healed. He goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. worshiping. See, this isn't just a healing of his body. Here's the evidence that it's a healing even of his soul and all the people saw him verse 9 walking and praising God in verse 10 they are filled the people are with wonder and amazement now that word that phrase wonder and amazement it truly means I'm not even actually exaggerating it literally means in the Greek they were out of their minds blew their minds they were wrecked this is beyond anything they could think or imagine and the man clung verse 11 to peter and john can you picture this he is so thankful he is so full of praise that he's he won't even let peter and john go he's got his arms around them he's holding their hands And all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them. It spreads like wildfire, what happens. And all these people come running into the portico called Solomon's. This is where you'll find, as we proceed in this series, that most of the apostles did their teaching. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Now, we're about to move to the message, but you cannot forget or miss this point. Peter knew he had an opportunity to witness of Jesus. And friends, I want you to know, you will know when you have that opportunity. God will make this clear. Colossians chapter 4, pray that God will clearly make an opportunity for us. To witness of Jesus Christ. And Peter knew he had an opportunity to witness of Jesus because word has spread like wildfire and people are coming to them. They don't even need to go to the people. And friends, how often opportunities to witness come to us and we just honestly miss them. Have you ever missed an opportunity and later you're like so angry with yourself? You knew, you knew God was setting things up. God was softening that heart. God was giving you a platform. He gave you an opportunity and fear came in and you did all the little dance that we all know and we all have done and that is, well, maybe it's not right time yet. I'll wait a little bit longer and I'll do it next time. And yet it was an opportunity lost. But Peter was quickly learning that when God does something miraculous, it is to prepare people to hear the gospel. Now I want you to hear that again. When God does anything that is worthy of your testifying of it, it is an opportunity to share the gospel. It's not an opportunity to amaze people about you. And it's not even just an opportunity to tell people about this God. It's an opportunity to tell people about the gospel. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, the role, the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles is to draw people to the messenger and the message of Jesus. Do you hear that? Every single time, the purpose of a sign, wonder, or miracle is to draw people to the messenger, the Christian, who's about to declare the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Peter would not miss this opportunity. And here we go, the message. Point number three. Here's the focus of the message. I'm going to take you back for a moment. Who came into your mind that you so desire to see get saved? And if that person said to you, give me a reason why you believe in Jesus, what would you actually say? Here is what I would tell you, at least in this case for Peter are three vital parts of every time we witness of jesus christ these are three root foundations of the gospel message number one always always direct unbelievers to jesus christ always direct them to jesus christ look what peter does verse 12 men of israel why do you wonder at this Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety? We have made him walk. Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And that faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all always direct unbelievers to jesus christ there can be no effective powerful witness of jesus if you do not direct all glory to jesus christ and by the way i'm going to tell you right now and i'm victim of this over and over it is so tempting to steal some of that glory It is an elixir that once you get a sip of it, you want more of it. That even when you witness, even when you're telling unbelievers about Jesus, there are ways to bring some of the attention to you, and you must not do it. You must resist that temptation and get all glory to Jesus Christ. See, Peter and John, all of these people are flocking to them. They are full of astonishment and wonder. It blew their minds. They are wrecked. They're looking at them like, wow, these guys are like super divine, godly men. All the attention was coming to them. And Peter and John could see it, and they got to turn it to Jesus. The lame man had no faith. So when we're talking about verse 16, and we're talking about faith in his name, let's just get it right now out in the open. The lame man evidenced zero faith. He didn't ask for a miracle. He was asking for money. He didn't recognize them as having been sent by God to heal his body and his soul. He just was looking for a payout. He had no faith. So who had the faith? And the answer is Peter and John had the faith who had witnessed the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. They remembered what Jesus taught them. They had hearts full of faith, and they asked God to heal this man. Here's what Jesus said in John 16 to Peter and John. In that day you will ask nothing of me, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, he will give it to you. They had faith to ask for the man's healing. And it might surprise you that in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, it is often the faith of the healer that is exercised on behalf of the sufferer. But faith itself is not the power that can heal anyone. Otherwise, you're going to leave here, and you're going to feel either terrible because your faith is too weak to do anything, or I've got to muster up my faith. I've got to grow my faith. I've got to get stronger faith so I can do miracles. That's the wrong theology. It's not faith that is the power that can heal anyone or save anyone That's the mistake of what is right now raging all over the world. America exports it. It's called the Word Faith Movement. It's in Africa. It's in South Africa. And the Word Faith Movement believes that, I'm going to quote them, faith is a power force with the ability to affect natural substance. Kenneth Copeland goes on, God cannot do anything for you apart or separate from faith for faith is God's source of power they actually believe that when God created all of creation he dipped into this substance called faith and that was the intermediate power agent that he could bring everything into an existence faith is not the power God is the power and faith is not the source of god's power god is the source of his power for it was the name that means the authority and the power of jesus christ that healed this man it's not even the extent of peter's faith and john's faith there was no faith in the beggar it's not the power of your faith it's the power of your god And when he exercises it and you believe he could do great things... ...and even when we don't believe, he could do great things. It's no power of Peter and John that healed this man... ...but the power of Jesus, whose name, by the way, means Yahweh saves... And when we witness to people, the one that's on your list, the one you so desire to see get saved, and maybe it's one of your parents, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a child, but if that person's on that list, do you actually know what you're going to say? Well, the very first thing that Peter and John shows us is get everybody to Jesus. You've got to direct them to Jesus and only Jesus but then the next part comes and it's hard always boldly address the problem of personal sin always boldly address the problem of personal sin now i said personal because some general esoteric idea of sin does not evidence repentance and I want to tell you, and I hope you write this down or remember it, conviction always precedes conversion, and repentance always comes before rebirth. There is no exception. Conviction always precedes conversion, and repentance always comes before rebirth. And unlike Peter, modern Christians, too many of them, tiptoe around the matter of sin and guilt they don't want to offend anybody they want to do a soft sell so they speak of how special people are and how much god wants them to reach their full potential and give them their best life now but i'm going to tell you the bad news of sin is necessary to hear before the good news of salvation can be received the bad news of sin is necessary to hear before the good news of salvation can be received. Now let me just tell you for a moment and this isn't really actually part of the message but I want to encourage you to go back and study this and overlay what I'm about to tell you on this. Do you know what a Do you know what lameness was a symbol of? The destructive, paralyzing, weakening force of sin. It's one of the most perfect symbols of what sin will do to any of us. So, when you read this story about Jesus, or Peter and John healing through the power of Jesus, this lame man, what you're really seeing is the gospel being acted out in real life through a figurative or a literally physical problem to get to a spiritual problem. Sin destroys lives. It deadens our feet symbolically. It paralyzes us so that we cannot move on righteous paths. It destroys our sensibilities. And it puts us in the position of a pauper in great need of grace. I've often said that I have never met anyone who claimed to have never sinned. Never. Instead, people and I hear it in the church as well, will dodge the offense and the force of the word sin. And so they say, well, I made bad choices or I made mistakes or I committed a wrong behavior. That's the synonyms for sin that deflect the force of the reality of it. And you've got to have the courage to be able to be boldly talking about sin. You cannot let them go away from personal sin because the reality of your personal sin must precede reaching out to the hands of God in grace. And almost everyone defies, defines sin as behaviors and I bet some of you do as well and I want to take you into a little bit of a correction on that everybody defines sins as actions or behaviors here's what it sounds like I do things I should not do or that I know I shouldn't do or I'm not doing things that I know I ought to do that's the behavioral talk of sin and it doesn't go deep enough The problem is not really, most deeply, our behavior. The problem is our hearts. And our hearts are promoting these behaviors. And if you want to get saved, it's not your behaviors that get scrubbed. It's your heart that gets sanitized by the blood of Jesus. You see, sin is a heart of unbelief and defiance to God, and it produces actions of rebellion and selfishness. So when I'm talking to somebody about Jesus, when I'm witnessing of Jesus, I'm going beyond their behavior. I'm going through their behavior, down into their heart, where the problem really lies, But if you camp out on the behavior, they're never going to come to the point where they are stricken with repentance, godly sorrow. They'll just try to act better. They'll try to clean up their act. They'll feel a little bad for what they did, but they won't feel bad for who they are. And the gospel needs to get them bankrupt so that they will turn to the one who will make them rich. We've got to address the problem of sin, and Peter does it. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom... Oh, this is hurtful. Can you imagine being in this audience listening to this sermon? Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate? when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. These are hearts that defied God, that rebelled against the very servant God has sent to save them. See, what Peter's saying is God glorified Jesus who proved who he was by signs and wonders and miracles and you saw them and instead of submitting to him and instead of believing in him, you rejected him and you handed him over to be crucified. But listen, God raised Jesus to life. But he says you should have known better. Verse 22, the Lord God will raise up for you. This was a Prophecy from Moses, and you know this, that the, that God will raise up for you a prophet from, like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And with incredible clarity and boldness, Peter warns them audaciously and boldly, and friends, we've got to get here, we've got to be like this. Verse 22, and it shall be that every soul, verse 23, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. When's the last time that you warned somebody of the eternal sufferings of hell? You cannot soft sell the gospel. And you cannot placate people into conversion. And unfortunately, hell has disappeared from the pulpits of American churches, yet no one in the Bible, I hope you hear this, no one talked about hell and the certainty of it and the horrors of it more than Jesus. Nobody in the Bible did And friends, if you reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and that means anybody that's here right now who is living in that rejection or anybody watching this on your screen who is living in rejection, Jesus, and if you die in that rejection, Jesus will throw you into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. And you will be there for eternity in a place of unceasing torment. And if Peter ended his message there, and if I ended this message here, then it would be one of the worst messages ever preached. But Jesus, or Peter rather, nor I, are going to end there. Point number three, and this is the final one. Always offer the promise of God's grace if they will repent. Always offer the promise of God's grace if they will repent. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. Can you pay attention for a moment, verse 19, to that word blotted? And you need to know that ink back then did not have acid in it like our modern ink does. So it could not etch into the parchment. And so you can easily wipe it off. And this is how they reused parchment. They did it all the time because it was so expensive. All you had to do was wipe it away. And Peter is telling them that even though they rebelled against God... Even though they put him to death, he will forgive even that if they repent, he will blot their sins out as if they never sinned. They will be filled with refreshing hope as Jesus will one day return. This is the eschatological hope that Peter mentions. And he's going to restore all things in his kingdom. And they will live forever with him. See, this is what people need to hear once you direct them to Jesus and you boldly show them their personal sin. You cannot lead them there. Even though you are a great rebel of God, even though your heart is full of defiance to God, God still loves you and he's making a way for you. And if you will repent, there is refreshing that will come to you. There is hope and that will be blotted out of you. But friends, I'm telling you right now, Christian brother and sister, you cannot promise anyone the grace of forgiveness if they will not repent and turn from sin. You dare not do that for repentance is the fruit of godly sorrow and the terrible realization that my sins, Tim Ackley's, my rebellion required Jesus, the Christ, verse 20, the anointed one to be crucified. I put him on the cross. And you put him on the cross. If we're going to be witnesses of Jesus, then we've got to tell people the good news of his salvation. And we've got to trust that God, number one, will create opportunities to confirm and validate you and the gospel message. He will validate you, the messenger, and he will validate his message. You must have faith in that. So what do you do? Be faithful to direct people to Jesus, not to more effort, not to good works, not to, you got to come to church. That's all great to say, come to church and invite them, but you're the one God is sending to them. So direct them not to Tim Ackley or Matthew Millen, direct them to Jesus Christ. He is a much better Savior. And boldly address their personal sin, for there is no salvation without conviction or repentance. But don't stop there. You've got to offer them the promise of God's grace if they repent. What happened as a result of this sermon? Look at Acts 4.4 4 for a moment if you would. This is just Peter witnessing. And he's doing it through the form of preaching, but you and I, we do it through the form of talking with people all the time. And many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men, not counting women and children, the number of the men came to about 5,000. So 3,000 on the day of Pentecost Now up to 5,000, that means 2,000 men got saved from that message that we just looked at, at the Solomon's portico. Just imagine what God can do through you with that person that came to your mind who you so strongly desire to see get saved. Will you direct them to Jesus? Will you pray for opportunities to do it? Will you boldly show them their personal sin? And will you show them the grace of God that could be theirs if they will repent? That's how you witness of Jesus. And it takes the Spirit filling you to do it right. Amen? Let's pray for that. Father, I thank you. Lord, for Peter, I thank you for John. Lord, even though John seems at this point to be a silent partner, I can imagine John was probably praying the whole time that Peter was preaching. I'm sure Matthew, Pastor Matthew, Pastor Kyle do that for me. I do that for them. Lord, this is what we do for each other. And Lord, he had the opportunity to preach. And he had the opportunity to witness And you gave him that opportunity through a miracle because signs and wonders and miracles always prepare people for the message. And that message was amazing. Lord, he he directed them to Jesus Christ. He would not take even an ounce of the credit, not even a little bit of the glory. He would have nothing of it. He gave it all to Jesus. And he boldly told them, about their personal sin. But he did not leave them there. He showed them that times of refreshing and blotting out of sins can come to anyone who repents. Father, would you give us that courage? Would you give us that clarity for that person that came to mind that we so, so want to see get saved? Would you give us the opportunity? Would you let us direct them to Jesus? Would you let us have the boldness, Lord, to be able to confront them lovingly on their personal sin and will we promise them and show them that times of refreshing will come to them, that you will blot out their sins. And May we have stories to tell how you are filling us with power and boldness and opportunities and people are coming to know Jesus. May that be what we see at Cornerstone Church. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.